The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Would you guys join me once more in prayer before we get started? And Father, I uh, have granted, been granted by you once again the great privilege to, to preach your word, and it is truly a blessing to do so, to be entrusted uh, by my brothers and sisters in Christ and you to, to do this uh, wonderful um, Wonderful privilege, Father. And I ask, as our Bibles are open, that, that light would be shining through, light of your truth, to illuminate the darkness that is within and around us, to overcome lies, God, that it would just uh, be very abundantly clear what it is you are speaking to us right now here in this moment. We can pray such things with confidence, God, because we do have your word. And I ask for your Holy Spirit and we place our confidence in to do that which is impossible for man, but with you, very much possible, for all things are by your hand. So I ask for your favor. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis 19. So uh, a a word I purpose to not use often is the word hate. It's, it's an appropriate word when rightly applied. Psalm 119, verse 104, for instance, is an example. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Okay? That's an appropriate use of the word hate. There's others. In Scripture. But one not in Scripture, but I believe would be appropriate, is I hate poison oak. I absolutely hate poison oak. And I'm not ashamed, unashamed to admit it. It represents strongly the curse God placed on his creation due to our sin. I hate it. It is so pervasive and it's assault on you, it shows no mercy. There could, be, there could be one of the most beautiful, pristine trail system for biking or trail running, and if it is overrun with poison oak, like, I'm not going. I am not going. I'll pass. Thank you. It's just not worth it to me. I don't even, I don't even have to touch the, the cursed plant, right? It's like there's, there's oils. If I'm in the proximity, it's like there's oils in the air, and and inevitably, marks start showing up, the vile weed on my skin. You know, the rashes start popping up. I'm like, I didn't even touch it. But if I'm just around it, that has happened. Not to mention how sly the cursed plant is to bring affliction through the oils that adhere to your pets. Your shoes, you know, tools or clothing, things of that sort, where randomly the rash just, just pops up on your skin though you know yourself have not been around it at all. 
And God forbid there to be some, some burning in a fire pile and the smoke from it come your way in your direction, enabling it to get into your lungs or your eyes. I mean, misery, horrible misery awaits if that's the case. I hate poison oak. It is pervasive and it shows no mercy. How similar is that to sin? How similar is that to sin? I mean, in much the same way, sin is pervasive, meaning it can easily get in, and once in, actively spread through the whole extent of a person. This is why Jesus describes sin as leaven. Remember? Once the leaven is in, it grows and contaminates the whole lump. And speaking of your life, sin is the leaven, you are the lump. And sin, much like poison oak, is pervasive. It easily gets in and spreads, and it shows no mercy. The account of Lot's life confronts us with the deadly reality of this. And therefore, it's the main take-home from our passage this morning. The main take-home. The pervasiveness of sin shows no mercy. The account, and there are two aspects of this pervasiveness of, of sin that shows no mercy in which we will confront in Lot's life in chapter 19 of Genesis this morning that serve as a, as a warning to us. And the first is immersion. Immersion. The last thing I would ever consciously do with poison oak is to immerse myself in it. You know, I dare you to make a snow angel in that bed of poison oak. It's not a dare I would take. I don't care what the stakes are, right? And for the well-being of our souls, Christian, you and I, we should make every effort not to immerse ourselves in sin which is pervasive and shows no mercy. Sadly, however, Lot did. And our first point on the pervasiveness of sin that shows no mercy is a dreadful warning. We see the deadly effects of one who immersed immersed himself in sin in the opening 22 verses of this chapter. It's a big chapter, but we can take, take one big fat chunk right there. The danger of immersion. Now, remember Lot's progression of compromise? Do you remember that? First, we see in Genesis 13.10, when he and his uncle Abram were separating due to the land not being able to support the both of them. Abram says to Lot, you know, you choose first. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley that was well watered everywhere, like the, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, and the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm quoting verse 10 there. And that's important to remember. Like the garden of, e- or the, garden of the Lord, right? Close to Zoar. Remember those points. We'll get there later. Well, this beautiful place, full of life, prior to when the Lord destroyed it, is what Lot chooses in the direction of Zoar. And in verse 12 of Genesis 13, we see that Abram settled in the land of Canaan, 
And Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved, because it wasn't close enough, moved his tent as far as Sodom. Like he's drawn near Sodom now. Okay, so what next after some time has passed? Because you remember, there's like 25 years, remember, from when Abram first heard that promise to pretty much right now. So time has passed. What next? Chapter 14 of Genesis gives us the account of Abram's rescue of Lot, who was taken captive along with Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Where do we find Lot then? Verse 12 of chapter 14, Lot, the son of Abram's brother, was dwelling in Sodom with possessions. Like there's further progression in a negative sense. Further progression in a negative sense. Lot gives up the tent on the edge of Sodom and is now one of its residents dwelling in the city with a dwelling, a house. Forget the tent. I want a house. Stick built. As is plainly stated in the opening verses of chapter 19 before us. We'll get there in just a moment. And what do we do when we are settled in a place? Same thing we do here. We acquire possessions. Like he is settled in. There's nothing new under the sun. We acquire possessions. We do it now, and they did it then. All this to to emphasize that Lot shows no indication of wanting to leave Sodom. Zero. In fact, where do we find him in chapter 9, verse, in chapter 19? Verse 1, sitting in the gate of Sodom. This isn't just a regular hangout spot, right? Further progression of compromise, for this is where the elders of the city sat. Okay? Like seniors getting the coveted seats in the back of the bus, so the elders of the city would sit at the gate. I mean, this was a prestigious position to be in. He worked himself up in this culture. And what does this tell us? Yeah, that he worked himself up, that he's accepted as one of the elders. I mean, picture that. He's just greeting newcomers like, hey, welcome. Welcome to my home. Let me show you around. This is what he has led himself to. And can you not help get the sense that he was content where he was at? Totally content, which, which is striking for 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, depicts Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he, Lot, he himself was tormenting his own, his own righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I believe Scripture that that, that, that was indeed the case. But boy, how he seems so desensitized to it. He's at the gate. He's just like there, anchored in. While all along, he is tormenting himself by everything that's around him that he sees and hears. Scripture gives no indication that he was being held there against his own will. Zero. He could have left. He didn't want to. He remained immersed, immersed in the sinfulness surrounding him Day and night, the pervasiveness of sin shows no mercy in large part 
by blinding your eyes and making you, making you desensitized to it, to your own ruin, to the, your own ruin of character. And what is the ruin, you say? Let's, let's pause there. There's plenty, but let's pause there and let's begin first on a high note, okay? Let's begin first on a high note. Some, some kudos to throw Lot's way here in the opening verses before we go there. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. By the grace of God, Lot is identified as a righteous man. The same righteousness based on faith that his uncle Abraham has. Okay? True righteousness comes by no other means. And righteous Lot, by faith, righteous Lot demonstrates some acts of righteousness here. Verse 1, Lot is sitting in the evening time at the gate of the city, and these two men come approaching, which we know from the prior chapter to be the angels the Lord sent to destroy the city. You know, these two men are coming, though, and Lot doesn't know this. No indication is given that Lot knew what these men were about to do. If anything, it makes clear that he didn't. Okay? And, and notice, Lot recognizes something about them that sets them apart. For verses 1 through 2, when Lot saw them, you know, he arose, arose to greet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. There's that place, his house, to your servant's house. Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. You know, and, and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Note that. Go on your way. Not after you destroy the place, but after breakfast. Like he had no idea what they were about to do. And we'll stop there at that moment. Backing up just a little bit to that greeting, because I find that intriguing about his greeting of these men. Having no idea that, they were, that these were angels coming, he recognized something about these men that set them apart, right? He, recognized, he, he responded to them in a way that he recognized something about them that set them apart. And we see him go out of his way, insisting to show them great hospitality. The two men we know to be angels, they at first were not compliant to his offer. They're like, no, we're just going to stay here. But he persists. He persists to show them honor and great hospitality. And he wins them over. It's like, that's not bad, Lot. Not bad. You know, this is a shining moment. And legitimately, legitimately so. Lot shows Christian character in his greeting of them. The persistent invitation to show them hospitality. And also protection for that matter. Like, get out of the gate. Lot knows what goes down in this place. And then, and then his eagerness in doing so. He's super ego. He's gung-ho about it. That is like, that's like thumbs up. Lot, well done. And for bonus, for bonus, Lot recognized something about these men to set them apart. Or that set them apart. And that's... That's good instruction for us, church. That's good instruction for us. 
virtuous qualities that set the follower of Christ apart from those who don't love and obey Jesus. Because there ought to be those things that set us apart, that's recognized. And I'm not talking about clothing or personality, but just quality, virtuous qualities, which can be none other than the fruits of the Spirit. Right? There's those nine of them. Those are great to just keep hearing again. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Did I get all nine of them? What was the other one? Meekness? No. Gentleness. Of course I didn't get gentleness. But those things that encompass our daily life, like those are those virtues that ought to set us apart, that are not of this world, that are the Spirit of Christ in us. And we see that Lot recognized something. It doesn't specify those, but he recognized something about these two men coming, and as it ought to be with us. That ought to be something recognized in us. So this is Lot's shining moment. Like, we will give him that. Moment of silence, though. Because that's it, right? For that's it. Because it goes no further. He's hosting these two men in his home after... He's he's hosting these two men in his home. And after dinner... Before they lie down for night, the deadly reality of where he, Lot, has immersed himself is just waking up, you could say. Like the enemies of David spoken of in Psalm 59, wicked men who each evening they come back, listen to this, howling like dogs and prowling about the city, They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. In this case, these wicked men, their fill is to have sexual relations with these two men Lot has taken into his home. They come in the evening like howling dogs to where these men are at, insisting to feast on them with their sensual desires. And consider with me the the wickedness of this city. I mean, it was staunch, thick, and unified. Just look at verse 4. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. All the men, young and old, to every last one of them, wickedness permeated every generation within this city, to every man. I believe that literally. And Lot saw virtuous men to show honor to. That's what his eyes saw. The eyes of the wicked saw unblemished prey to have their fill of. Notice in verse 5 that the, the quickness of their evil assault and the directness of their speech. They don't, get, they don't go around it. They're just flat out unashamed speaking of their intentions towards these innocent men. I mean, there's no masking whatsoever. It's just, bah, right there. They're unwavering bent on fulfilling the perverse act toward another. And all these men, young and old, unified, 
surround Lot's house. Like they just engulf it, which is a picture of his life, literally on a big scale. I mean, but can you picture that? Can you imagine that? Like what a scene. What a scene. It sounds, really it sounds unthinkable. Every man in the city, every one of them, this is not a small little city, right? This, that's a lot surrounding Lot's house to have sexual relations with these two men, the two angels sent by God to destroy the place. The picture of the scene seems unthinkable. Has anything unthinkable happened this past year? This past, these past two or five years? I can think of a few. The depravity of man has no limit. And there is nothing new under the sun. Given enough time, without God's intervention, this is the destination sinful man will reach every time. I even just read this morning in the Gospels. Had not the Lord shortened those, those days, right? There would be no one left. The Lord must intervene. If he does it, this is the direction sin will drive and accomplish every time. Lot has a flickering moment here now. Flickering. Flickering moment of, with, with hints of nobility and going out to defend these two men. But oy vey. The pervasiveness of sin shows no mercy to Lot's ruin, for he refers to them as brothers. And as he would as an elder of the city, right? Verse 7, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. I can see God in heaven, like, do one of these numbers, like, oh, Lot. Brothers, really? Now, now Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And no doubt, he spent time with and dined with sinners. But he never referred to them as brothers. In fact, even when his siblings and mother are calling for him, He made this distinction in Matthew chapter 12, verses 48 through 50. Jesus says, who is my mother? Or, or, and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, his followers, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. Now listen, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. And mother. So there is a big difference to spending time with, having relationships with, friendships with those who don't call or those who don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, than to consider them in the same unique relationship category you would one whom worships the same Lord as you do, who read 
and gladly submits to the same word of God as you do, who share the same hope in God through Jesus Christ as you do. And what is important to note and not to be missed is how Jesus, Jesus lived the same and taught the same regardless of whom he was with. Jesus was constant in who he was, and we likewise should demonstrate constancy in our lives. People whom you interact with outside the church and inside the church, for that matter, ought to reach the same conclusion over not so long period of time that you are a follower of Christ. They should reach that same conclusion. Light cannot be hid, right? That's the truth of God's words. Light cannot be hid. The saltiness of salt has an effect. I wish Dick was here (laughs) because this came through memory. We were staying at his place for those three months, my family and I while we were in the pursuit of purchasing a home. And God bless the Spawnhowers and the Ebies for that season. God provided through them. But I recall during our stay there, this one time, my dad was there for a visit. And I re- distinctly recall that moment. My dad, who was visiting, you know, he, he lifted up his cup of coffee, bringing it to his mouth for that first oh-so-yummy sip of Joe, right after he put a little sugar in it from the sugar dish. Yeah, you know where I'm going. I wish you could see the look on his face. I mean, if I wasn't so close to him, that coffee would have been all over me. But he held it in, and it was just like, oh, I mean, it just crushed him. It just ruined that first sip. You know, the salt, because there was salt in it, obviously. The salt, it was not the sugar, had a definitive effect. Definitive effect. Light cannot be hid. The saltiness of salt has effect. And we as Christians are to be salt and light. And to be so with constancy. Constancy. People whom you interact with outside and inside the church ought to reach the same conclusion over not so long a time that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That is if there is salt, there is light and salt in your life. Lot's relation with the men of the city did not indicate he was being salt and light among them. Day after day, as as Lot tormented his own righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And the moment he does act in opposition to thwart their evil intent, he does so in a manner that reflects his ruined character that has no salt and light. And how could it? Right? How could it? For Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 34 through 36, your eye is the lamp of your body. 
When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And not only were Lot's eyes, you know, the lamp of his body, seeing their lawless deeds day after day, but his ears, right? It says also what he heard. His ears were also taking it in. His ears were taking it in as well. Severely detrimental to his spiritual life. It ruined his character. He had no light or salt in his life. And it's no different with us, friend. It's no different with us. Access to your mind and your heart is through your eyes and your ears. Guard that, saints. Guard it. Guard it with your life and for your life. Psalm 101, 2 through 4. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not, I repeat, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Like, memorize that, saints. Guard your heart and your mind for your good. Wherever you are able, I know sometimes you can't, but so much we can. Guard it. Be mindful of what, you, of what you willfully expose yourself to, both in your seeing and in your hearing. With all you are able, remove yourself from such exposure. Being Immersed in the physical place and culture of Sodom, Lot only took in, right? (laughs) He had no other input. He only took in that which tormented his righteous soul to his own ruin. Self-inflicted ruin. Instead of being salt and light, his actions reveal the deadly reality of just how engulfed he is in the wickedness he's placed himself in, and therefore how pervasive sin is. Revealing more of his ruined character, Lot's solution, Lot's solution to the situation is nothing short than atrocious. Absolutely atrocious. And worse yet, he speaks so cavalier about his disturbing attempt to deter these men. I can't stand how even just the tone of his speech. Verse 8, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Aren't his daughters also under the protection of his roof? It's just... It's sick to think he would suggest such a thing. But without flinching, he does. It just rolls right out. He does so with 
He does so with the similar callousness of speech the men of the city have when they are speaking of the horrible things they want to do. He sounds just like them. And I state again, this is self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Nowhere does Scripture say Lot was called by God to live in Sodom. Nowhere. He had plenty of options. He could, have, he could have just stayed in the valley. It was beautiful there. He didn't keep having to go near, near, near to Sodom and then build a house there. But compromise, compromise after compromise leads to this outcome. Birds of the same feather flock together. He became one of those birds, right? Lot entrenched himself in the midst of wicked men whom Lot referenced as brothers. Meaning Lot spent time with them on a regular basis. Of How could he not? He's living in the city as one of the elders who had influence upon him. The men that you surround yourself with have influence upon you whether you want it or not. And that is a distinction to make clear for, for so many think, oh, I can, just, I can just enjoy hanging out with them. I can. You know, they're, they're filthy jokes their topics of discussion, their, their way of thinking, how or what they engage in, it's, it's not having an effect on me. I can hold strong. That's dangerous, dangerous thinking for God's word, the living word, cautions otherwise. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, right from the gate, do not be deceived. Bad company, what's the next word? Ruins good morals. Caution that, church, Christian, caution that. Can we have a better example of this truth than than in the life of Lot? I don't believe so. And I repeat, this doesn't mean you don't invite non-believers over for dinner and interact with them relationally to various degrees. On the other hand, like, do all those things. Cultivate caring relationships with them that you may have a place to be a voice they listen to. This is important. But like Jesus, have fellow God-fearing people as the primary with whom you do life with, that mutual influence to Christ's likeness would be the formative direction you bring to one another. Listen to this truth. Heed this example as a warning for the sake of your soul. Choose friends. Choose companions wisely. Do the do the men of the city listen to Lot? Of course not, right? Verse 9. They instantly turn on, turn on him with a rapid wave that begins with mockery, swells to threat, and then finally crashes into a physical assault. If the angels at this point, in verses 10 and 11, if they had not intervened, In all likelihood, I believe, Lot would have been killed or severely injured at best. But the two men, the angels sent by the Lord to destroy the cities, 
they rescue Lot and prevent the men from entering the house by causing them to go blind. So now they're in the house. And it's at this moment, in verses 12 through 22, when the angels reveal to Lot who they are and why they've come. And we see the continuation of the pervasiveness of sin that shows no mercy to the ruin of Lot's character who immersed himself in the thick of it all. We see, we see the continuation of that ruined character carry on through this whole scene, right? Verse 14, his, his sons-in-law who are, who are to marry his daughters, when he's warning them, they're not taking him seriously at all. I mean, he's like chicken little to them. He's like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And they're like, ha, that's hilarious. That's hilarious, Lot. Funny guy. You know, warning about judgment coming from a man who had no, no moral compass of his own, who had no pattern of righteous resolve. What reason did Lot give them to take him seriously? Zero. Lot gave them no reason. There is nothing demonstrated in his life that they should take him seriously, and they don't. They think he's jesting. And then in verse 15 and 16, this, this reminds me of a, of a teenage boy getting ready for school in the morning. Okay? The angels are like, come on, Lot. Come on. Get, get moving. Get moving. You're going to miss the bus. Get your stuff. Get your wife and your daughters. Grab your lunch. Your schoolwork, brush your teeth, comb your hair. Come on, come on. Like a teenager, still lingering. Lot's like walking in circles, you know, getting nothing accomplished. Nothing. The men had to physically take a hold of Lot and his two daughters and his wife by the hand to get him out. I mean, what a crazy scene. That's what was going on. The concluding portion of their escape Verses 17 through 22, really for me, depicts the continuation of his ruined character of being a man of compromise. It's just more of the same thing, even in the heat of all this. When one of the angels, in the rush of the pending destruction to come, says, escape for the hill, for your, excuse me, escape for your life. Do not look back. Do not, st- do not stop anywhere in the valley. Like, keep moving. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. You know, Lot's fretting. Oh, no, my lords. Like, he's just frozen still. Or, or I'm not sure if he's still, but he just, just compromised. He's just like, ah, it's just too much. Like, I'm not going to make it. That's too big of a hill to climb. How about here? Another compromise. How about here? It's just a little city. Don't destroy this little city. I'll just stay there. And they're so gracious to him. So God is so merciful to him because he grants him that. But you see, that's just more compromise. That's been his pattern. The pattern continues. Habitual patterns of compromise. And it's always going the path of least resistance. He goes to this little place, and by name, like little city Zoar. That's what Zoar means, little. Verse 22. But then we see, because there's more to come, Looking ahead at verse 30, we're jumping a little bit for the time being over 20, verses 23 through 29. We see in this verse 30, Lot compromising once again. And over what? The Lord knows. I don't know. Perhaps over nothing, it seems. But 
I don't, maybe just some just little resistance because he's in this little city. But what do we find out? Law went up out of Zoar. Isn't this what he begged to go to? Yeah. But he went up out of Zoar and he lived in the hills with his two daughters because he was afraid. He was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters up in the hills. God, Lot, ruined in character by self-driven, heavy immersion into sinful surroundings from compromise to compromise, by which he tormented his own righteous soul, soon finds himself now in just, if not worse, of deadly circumstances. He puts himself in isolation. He puts himself in isolation. And we'll return to verses 23 through 29 in our conclusion. But before we go there, another danger, as just mentioned, of the pervasiveness of sin that shows no mercy is the danger of isolation. There's enough sin in here to call all sorts of problems, right? Especially after one who's immersed himself in it for so long. The danger of isolation. It, it's, it's one of those passages, verses 30 through 38. It's one of those passages that I'd rather not read aloud again. It's just filthy content. And so I won't. I'm not going to read that again. Being in isolation has a danger all its own. He's in a cave now. Lot has no accountability, no godly input, nor any godly influence in his life whatsoever. Just retreat to isolation now that he's escaped the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The pervasiveness of sin that remains within him and his daughters shows no mercy. You know, his, his daughter's desire, their desire for, to have children, that's not a bad desire. We have a lot of kids, right? So that's not bad to preserve offspring in the line of their father. They were about to be married. Sons-in-law are just awaiting destruction. That's not going to happen. So that's not a bad desire. But that desire and the pervasiveness of sin, it leads them to go about fulfilling it, to go about fulfilling it in a most ungodly way. And their devised plan to do so implies another sinful habit of Lot. His daughters seem pretty well acquainted with the fact that their father will easily get drunk on wine, so drunk that he actually blacks out to no recollection whatsoever over a lapse of time. Like their plan depends on that. And they succeed in their plan back-to-back nights. I mean, what does that tell us about Lot? And the, the birth, the children, the sons that come from this filthy event are the Moabites and the Ammonites. What do we know about these nations? 
They were a constant trouble to the nation Israel. Like that is the outcome of such family, of such a family. Psalm 83, just put that out there. I actually read it this morning. I'm like, well, there you go. Like these are the strong arm of the children of Lot. And he's speaking of these two amongst other nations that conspired together against Israel. And the prayer in that Psalm 83 is just vicious. I love those prayers in the Psalm. It's like, man, I wish I could pray like that. They, when it's like calling God's judgment against God's enemies, whew, it's, it's mighty. And that's what Psalm 83 is about. And it's identifying the children of Lot, the strong arm of the children of Lot. That's the outcome of this sinful sinfulness. The danger of isolation is very real. Very real. Christian, heed God's word in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love. you got to be together to do that, right? And to good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. That does not happen in isolation. Take this command seriously. A Christian not in regular fellowship is a Christian prey to the pervasiveness of sin that shows no mercy. Sin shows no mercy. Sin is hell-bent on destroying you. Genesis 4-7. Sin is crouching at the door. It's desire. It has a desire, and it is contrary to you meaning to destroy you. Sin will never show you mercy. But God is rich in mercy. And this is abundantly on display for us in the heart of the passage. Returning to verses 23 through 29 in our concluding point, where we see the intensity of, of God's judgment with mercy present. Intensity with mercy. Our concluding point in verses 23 through 29. Do you recall earlier in the sermon, in verses 12 and 13, when, they, when the angels ask Lot, like, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, Sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them, out to the, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place. Because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Why are they, why are they asking? Why are the angels asking Lot this question? Could it be? That the hours, the hours beforehand, could it be that hours beforehand in chapter 18, when these men were coming to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're on the edge. They, they haven't walked down to the city yet, remember? 
And this is that scene where the Lord is with him still. And Abraham is with him. And Abraham is pleading to the Lord not to destroy the place for the sake of ten righteous who are in it. And actually, when Abraham is praying that, pleading that interceding prayer, the two men are going down to see if the wickedness is, as the outcry states, to destroy the place. And Abraham stays with the Lord and intercedes, pleading with him. The the Lord answered Abraham's plea. Remember? For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. That's a promise. He's like, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. In Genesis 18.32. So could it be the two angels here with Lot now are acting in accordance to the Lord's response to Abraham? I believe. I believe so. Like, Lot, Lot, who's with you, man? Who is with you? For we are about to destroy this place, and we have our orders. We have our orders from the Lord not to do so until every righteous one is out. So let's, let's get everyone out, because this is going down. And much like, much like the outcry of the oppressed, because of the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there had to be a ton, right? All that wickedness taking place does not have collateral damage everywhere widespread. It just doesn't. Sin damages both the sinful activity, those who are engaged in it, but it has collateral damage. The effects are widespread. And so there is an outcry. And just like the outcry of it moved God in compassion for them, and his compassion is to destroy the place, after careful inspection, so also, James 5, verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And to the benefit of Lot, Abraham fervently intervenes with prayer to the Lord on his behalf, which had great power as it was working, or as it is working to rescue Lot and any other righteous soul from Sodom and Gomorrah before God destroyed the place. Is this not what verse 29 says plainly? So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, this is beautiful, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God shows tremendous, tremendous mercy to Lot. And Abraham's interceding prayer was involved in it. Which is a mystery to me. That's all I got to say. That's just a mystery to me. But nevertheless, true according to God's word. For supportive emphasis, consider Jude. Chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. But you, speaking to the Christian, beloved, building yourselves up in your your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And, now watch this, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. 
snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. I believe that aligns with what Abraham did here on behalf of his nephew, Lot. Along with me, let's, let's, try, let's aim to, to follow that example of Abraham. Like, don't give up praying for one to receive mercy from God. And according and by the Holy Spirit's design, that was our prayer this morning, right? Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep praying for one to receive mercy from God to not remain, remain under the intensity of his wrath. Because it is intense. It is real and it is coming. Let's, let's picture this sobering scene that Abraham himself takes in as we, as we read through these seven verses, 23 through 29 in closing. Just try to picture this scene because I... The language, the layout really does so well, I believe. Verse 23, the sun had risen. Now remember, when Abraham prayed, interceding, that was at night. That was in the evening, right? And the men went down in the evening, saw a lot at the gate. That was at the evening before the sun went, before they lay down, the men of the city surrounded the house. They weren't able to get, go to sleep. Like there is maybe 12 hours that's passed here, right? The sun is rising. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's, life, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now remember, this place was a garden, like the garden of Eden, the Lord. Like, like Egypt, just lush. And it is being rained on with fire and sulfur. And Lot's wife looks back, and she, the intensity of that moment, just poof, she's a pillar of salt. Like the, the angel says, go to the hills, don't look back, don't stay in the valley, keep moving. He's holding under her hand. She looks back. It's just salt now. I mean, that is intense. God's wrath is heavy. Let's continue. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Remember, maybe 12 hours beforehand, if that. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, that beautiful, green, lush, full of life valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. What is he thinking in that moment? I mean, he's standing there. The very place perhaps his foot stood as he's intervening, knowing that this destruction is to come. And now he sees what was yesterday like valley we live in, Hood River Valley, just lush, beautiful orchards. And now it is just a furnace of smoke. And at this point, he doesn't know the outcome of Lot, right? How could he? 
It's been maybe 12 hours. He doesn't know. He's just sitting there just like, woe is me. And if, if you recall in verse 18, the Lord even said to the angels, should I hide what I'm about to do to Lot or to, to, Lot, to Abraham? He knows the intensity of what is to take place. I love Karen's comment about this at community group. Like, what would Abraham, Abraham's prayer sounded like if that would have been after this, right? Like, God, you are a dreadful God. You are an all-consuming fire. Like, how would that have adjusted his prayer? Not that he prayed wrongly, but affected it. Before this, all that Abraham heard was, God, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I mean, just words of covenantal life. Like the stars in the heavens, so shall your descendants be. Now he is looking on a green valley that was full of life, and it's just a furnace of smoke. Man, that's a heavy moment. He's just sitting there like, oh, what was he thinking? Huge. So it was that when God, that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. And Peter speaks of that. That's just a reminder to God's faithfulness that he will rescue us from the wrath to come. Like all that is taking place, yet he was faithful to that, not 10, less than 10, three the fourth one turned into a pillar of salt. She wasn't. She looked back. She still longed for that place they were fleeing from. They're being rescued from. He is faithful to bring us through whatever is to come. We are not destined. If you are in Christ, you are not destined for wrath. But if you are not in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. Do you know you can visit this place today? Like, this isn't like the Garden of Eden. Like, you can walk and say, this is where the, you know, we have some direction about the Garden of Eden, but it's still like, yeah, and it's just not the same. Like, you just can't have any recollection of it. Not so with Sodom and Gomorrah. You can walk that land right now. Still nothing. Still ashes. Still, if you do any digging around, you can bring out Balls of sulfur, pure white, like nothing else on the earth. Nothing else. Just there, pure white. Strange formations of just ash, of, uh, of like the, what the outcome of limestone and fire would be. If fire is put on limestone, what the remains, if, I need a chemist in here to figure that out, but what remains would be, it would just be that. That's it. There is no life. South of the Dead Sea, and yeah, we can't, maybe you can't walk there, but you can go online and view it. It's there. Absolutely no life. Barren. Dead. And this is a kind of, I believe, there is a kind of a, a kindness in that. Why would I say that? God. I'm going back to, to 2 Peter again. God, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. He condemned them to ex- extinction. Hey, boy, extinction, extinction. There it is. He condemned, condemned them to extinction. Just as I said, you can go there today. Not changed. Lifeless. Making them an example. Note that. 
making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. What is going to happen to the ungodly? An example we could see with our own eyes today, whether in person or online. In kindness, the God, God, the righteous judge, shows man by visible reminder here on earth right now of the intensity of God's punishment for sin in hell. Hell. Hell is real, and it ought to rattle you with fear. If you don't love Jesus for yourself, if you love Jesus for those who we are called to bear witness to about Jesus, it ought to disturb you. Always. Not fear it if you're under the banner of truth, if you're in, if you're hidden in the cleft of the rock of Christ. But if not, it is a dreadful reality. And God in kindness helps us see that. Here is a place. Go there. Extinction. Nothing. It used to be like the garden of the Lord. Dead. Ashes. And so I leave you with this. I leave you with this. Lest you are thinking. God, please not. But lest you are thinking, this is how much of sin I can be immersed in and still be saved. Or as expressed in Deuteronomy 29, 19, by one who blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Woe is me if that is your thinking. I fear for your soul, dear friend, if, if such thoughts are even giving any, any Hint of entertainment to you. For such thinking can assure you of damnation. I leave you with, two, with a twofold warning that I pray you heed if any here are tempted to entertain such thoughts. First being, first being, if by sliver of a chance, If by sliver of a chance of God's mercy, you do fall into the the category of righteous lot, sliver of a chance, consider once again the fact that he tormented his own righteous soul by what he saw and heard day after day. Tormented. Meaning, he was miserable. Miserable. He had no peace in his life. There is no blessed assurance of salvation in his life. There is no joy of the Lord in his life. And clearly, as depicted here, no true friends to speak of in his life. His family was a wreck Like, is that what you want in your life? Not to mention the legacy of his name that that leaves. Like, no one names their son Lot. I've never heard that name personally in my life. Maybe you have, but I haven't. But I must say, if a father introduced 
his son to me saying, hey, and this is my son, Lot. I'd have to restrain the puppy dog look on my face that would be happening within thinking like, seriously? Like, do you know the story of Lot? Lot's legacy is not one to aspire to. It is shameful, tremendously shameful to the end. Is that how you want to be remembered? And then I remind you of our Lord Jesus' warning, which I believe ought to bear the greater weight. For when one asked him in Luke chapter 13, verses 23 through 28, when one asked him, Lord, will, will those who are saved be few? Jesus said to him, or said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then Jesus, as if saying, let me put it this way. By sharing a short story to emphasize his point that many upright, many upright Moral, thought to be Christians, men and women, thought to be, will come to him, come to Jesus, and say, Lord, open to us. Like, let us come into your kingdom. Then he will answer them. I do not know where you come from. They will begin to say, hey, we ate and drank in your presence And you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, this is where you depart. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In another gospel, he says, I do not know you. Same thing. I do not know you, says Jesus. You are not welcomed in my kingdom. You're a stranger to me. You belong in hell. Thought to be Christians coming to him saying this. Many will come to him and say this. Many will have that be their end. Do not let this be you, my friend. Do not let this be you. Hate sin. Hate sin. Knowing how pervasive it is, showing no mercy at all to the ruin of your soul. Hate sin. Do not willfully immerse yourselves in it, nor flee away in dangerous isolation. But rather, rather, along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, seek to know Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, that you may, may have the blessed assurance that you indeed are. Let's pray. Father, I I guess in this moment, what comes to my mind is that moment in my life 
raised in a Christian home, knew about Jesus, would even say, and, and could, knew the gospel, knew, knew a lot, thought I was, but then I came upon that passage where Jesus says, I do not know you, and then it, it struck me in a dreadful, fearful way. I wasn't sure. And I'm thankful for that moment. It is, it is a moment that has driven me on a course that I, I ask for my brothers and sisters to join me with in pursuing that blessed assurance and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt by willful, joyful surrender to your rule and reign in our heart, being filled with your Holy Spirit, that we would know that we are yours, that that is our, that is our primary, that is the greatest comfort in all our lives, that we belong to you, that our life is not our own, that we can say that with such piercing conviction and peace and rest in our heart with confidence in you. And that our lives, right in sync with that messy, broken, full of mistakes, but clearly distinct were those outside the church, were those inside the church, people who spend time with us cannot help but recognize those Christ virtues in us. Again, flawed, but yet present. God, I so desire, I so desire for your church to grow in that assurance that they belong to you to know that we are rescued from your wrath, your judgment, your righteous judgment for sin. And thank you, God, that you are a judge, that you will will deal, well, that you have dealt through Christ. You've conquered Satan, sin, and death. But that day awaits where you come and do away with Satan, sin, and death once and for all, where the consummation of all things that have been accomplished in Christ takes place. Thank you for being the God you are. And I ask, Holy Spirit, from your word, do our hearts desire in saving and sanctifying sinful people as we are. I ask this favor in the name of our Lord and Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.